Well, hello, Fellowship family. It's great to be with you. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Mark as we continue our series called Follow. And what does it look like to follow Jesus? We're going to learn that. It's kind of a theme in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Up to this point in Mark's account of the life of Christ, he was informed by Peter about who Jesus was and the ministry of Jesus. And we're learning at this point that Jesus is not just concerned about the externals. He's, he puts far more of his attention. He targets the heart. Jesus always works his way from the inside out. You may be focused on your life on the externals, but Jesus is focused on the internals. He's God in the flesh who actually sees our heart, who redeems our heart and restores our hearts. And he calls people to not only believe in him, but to follow him. Just the fact that he targets the heart means that he's interested in all of you, the real you, the authentic you. And he's interested in transforming you, not just doing some external moral changes, but an internal condition of the heart. And now we're going to learn that Jesus is actually calling us to be a fully committed follower of him. This is really going to get to the question of what purpose does Jesus fill in your heart right now or in your life? Many people say, Jesus is the one who saves me. I pray to Jesus and he gives me things. I ask Jesus to protect me. I ask for Jesus to bless me. These are all reasons, but they're self-centered reasons. They're about what Jesus can do for me rather than a willingness to follow him without strings attached. Many have no problem believing in Jesus and, and asking him to save them. It's the following that we struggle with. It's following him when Jesus gets in the way of our way. It's when following Christ threatens my lifestyle or what I believe to be my personal rights or my safety to my way of life or my security for either present or future opportunities. But yet his purpose, Jesus's purpose in our lives is not only to save us, but to rule in our hearts. He is not only our savior, he's our king. And we're going to learn from this passage that takes us into the kingdom of Rome and confronts the disciples with the kingdom that Jesus was going to give. And he's going to call them from being threatened by this kingdom to thrive in his kingdom. And we see, just because we see hindsight in in the history of the church, what, what happens when they move from being threatened by the kingdom of God to actually going all in the kingdom of God and thriving, advancing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to see a clear and specific confession of Jesus. This is the first confession of Jesus by the disciples that we see. But we're also going to hear a clear and specific call of Jesus to follow him. So let's look at that now as we go to the word. Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This place that Jesus taught his disciples and called them to himself is an interesting place. It's at the foothills of Mount Hermon. It's known today as Bonaeus, but at the time of Jesus, it was Caesarea Philippi. Jesus took his disciples on a journey up from Capernaum, about 20 miles northward to this place. This place had roots in a pagan worship of the god Pan. And Pan in the Greek literally means all-encompassing. So when you take a panoramic picture, you're taking an all-encompassing picture. When you go into panic, you're all-encompassed into anger or frustration. It's based on that word Pan. Pan was the god who, who lived in the caves. And he was half man, half goat. And the Greeks venerated him. Alexander the Great built a monument to the god Pan here in in Caesarea Philippi. And over the years, every major leader of the region would dedicate a temple. Herod's son, Philip, dedicated this city to Caesar, thus Caesarea Philippi. Not to be confused with Caesarea by the sea. This place, however, was evil. We could... Coined the phrase, what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi. It was a place of lust. There was temple prostitutes. And, and it was this, it was this, um, world that people would go there in the name of religion. They would do these immoral acts. And then they would leave the place. But it also stood as a memorial to a king and a kingdom. And it was such a stark contrast to the kingdom that Jesus would call his disciples to advance. I visited Caesarea or Philippi or Bonaeus as it's known today. And here's an artist drawing of the temples that were carved next to or that built next to those uh, those cliffs. And if you look over on that left hand side, you'll see that cave that's that's uh, chipped away. And they built that so that they could have a place for pan today. Those, those temples are ruins. There's nothing there. And you just see on that far left, that cave that they dug. And here's that cave in specific. It's a, a, you know, just a place they worshiped this God Pan. But it's interesting here. It's interesting that it was at this place or around this place that Jesus asked the question, who do you, who do people say that I am? It's an interesting question. By the way, if he were to ask you that today, what, what do people around you, who do, who do people around you say Jesus is? 
Some say he was a guy who lived here um, and he was a great political or social activist at the time for uh, for uh, people who have been thrown on the margins of life. Other people uh, would say, oh, he's a good moral leader. We need to follow Jesus, much like we need to follow Abraham Lincoln. But few call him God. Few call him God. And Jesus kind of exhausted the, their, their answers and then he looked them in the eye and he said, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers it quickly, doesn't he? He suffered from open mouth insert foot syndrome. I suffer with that. So he said, you are, you are the Christ. And, and Jesus goes, shh, don't tell anyone about this. But that is the great revelation that we built up to this point in, in the account that Mark is building here. It's at this point that Peter says, you are the Christ. And what was he saying? At this confession, you are the Christ. He was saying, you're the anointed one. You're the savior. You're the king. You're the expected one to deliver us from all the things that upset us, from all the things that frustrate us, from all the things that anger us, especially about Rome. You are the one now who is going to be the power to cast Rome away, set up your kingdom in Jerusalem from all four corners of the world. The Jews will come back and worship. And guess what? We're a part of this movement and we get to rule in this movement with you because we're in the inner circle now. And so they had a huge stake in it. If you wanted to get them motivated, you get them motivated and you'll change the world. You'll be a part of transformation. Don't, doesn't that motivation get us involved in ministry? That we get to be a part of something, a work of God, that the world won't be the same because we get to be a part of it. You are the Christ was, yes, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, and we're right with you. Yet his call was against everything they expected him to, or Jesus to be. You see, the disciples wanted the king, but they didn't want the cross. They wanted the savior of Israel, but they didn't want the suffering. And right after the confession, Jesus starts to teach. And he says, look, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by all the religious leaders. That, that was the picture they, they had of Jesus is that he would go into Jerusalem. Everyone would say, yes, the Messiah, come right in. And Jesus is saying, no, they won't. They won't welcome me. They'll reject me. They'll kill me. And, and you can almost see it in the passage. You can almost hear him going, what? He'll be killed. And, and then I'll rise on the third day. It's almost like they didn't even hear that. And then it moves to Peter taking Jesus aside, rebuking him. Lord, what in the world? Are you crazy? You're the Messiah. Killing and the Messiah. That's not going to happen. Stop. And Jesus does the great rebuke. We're going to talk about that. But think about this. In just seconds, Peter goes from, yes, the guy's got it, to, whoa, get behind me, Satan. The most strong rebuke Jesus ever does. Because they had a problem with this call. And that's what's amplified in this whole scenario, this whole incident, is that Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. This forces us to ask a question right now. 
is that what do you do when Jesus' call is not the call you expected? All of us will have to deal with that. In following Jesus, there are going to be things that he calls us to or calls us into that are not as we anticipated, not as we expected. Some of us thought by following Jesus, life would be made easier. And actually, we experience more challenges following him than we would if we felt if we were just blazing our own trail. Others of us ask him to give us the person of our dreams. And we actually fall in love with the person of our nightmares. Some of us pray for better health. And and in reality, we end up suffering more and are enduring more. Some of us seize at the opportunity for ministry. And we go, yes, and we get into it. And then we realize the people around us are broken. They don't do things the way I want them to do things. And we get so ticked. And right then there's a voice in the back. Bail out. Cut bait. Move on. And it's not as we expected it to be. Yet Jesus is calling us in this passage with this phrase. To the death. That's what we're called to when we follow Jesus. He really puts a finger on why we follow him in the first place. He's calling us to a committed, sacrificial, and enduring kingdom. Not of this world, but very much of his will. And there's three deaths that we're called to in following him. Each one of these deaths we have to navigate personally. And as we go through this, as Jesus confronts his disciples with this call... I think it's appropriate as we realize this call remains on our lives today. It would be good to navigate these personally. The first one is the call to follow Jesus to the death of death itself. It's interesting of what Jesus talks about his death in this passage. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after that, after three days, rise again. I think it's important that we realize what happens at our death. And with Jesus, we will never experience it. You go, oh, Joe, my body will die. Yes. I mean, that's just the shell. The nut's going to be with Jesus, right? Sorry, that's a bad joke. But the reality is, is you never will experience spiritual death. Your life, true life, the real part of you that lasts forever, your soul with Jesus will last forever with him. With him forever. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave was literally the death of death. Death no longer has its claws on your life. Do you know that's one of the greatest types of hope and confidence you can have? That if you can go to the end, your worst news that you could ever, it's eliminated. He just knocks it right out. It's no longer something that has power in your life. He knocks out the control and the power of death. Even the fear of death, Jesus eliminates with the great news of the gospel. And it's that promise from God that whoever believes in Christ will be saved. In Romans 6.10, it says the death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is the whole picture of of the death of Jesus. He died so that we wouldn't have to. 
He totally satisfied the righteous requirement for a payment for you and me. Jesus literally is the death of death. When you follow him, you have that confidence. Some of you have lost loved ones this year. Some of you have lost loved ones just this week. And the pain and the loss of, of a child or a, a grandfather or a grandmother or a, a wife or, or a husband. You know that pain. But yet, and yet, when a believer passes, we have the confidence of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the death of death. Following him, you have that confidence. Secondly, you, when you follow Jesus, you follow him to the death of sin. This was a defining moment. It didn't last long. It's the confession. You are the Christ. But then it's the rejection. Don't do this, Jesus, in the rebuke. And it's interesting that when Peter rebuked Jesus, look at what Jesus responded with. He says in verse 33, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here, Peter, in the inner circle, in the inner circle of Jesus gets the most stark and, and strong correction in the life of Jesus. You go, who, who did Jesus correct? All oh, the Pharisees and the people who were selling things at the temple and making money off of sacrifices to God. I mean, that got him enraged and he, you know, turned over the tables. No, the starkest correction of Jesus is this one right here. Get behind me, Satan. You went from the best, you are the Christ, to the worst. Get behind me, Satan. In just a matter of seconds. Because it's about his kingdom. It wouldn't be about, the, about Peter's kingdom. It would be about the kingdom of God in Peter's life. Where else do you see Jesus using this correction? Actually, to Satan himself. On the third temptation of Jesus, before he started his ministry, Satan took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all these kingdoms if you bow and worship me. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. That's exactly the correction he did. Because it wasn't about the kingdom of Satan. It wasn't about the kingdom of this world that he was going to be about. It was about God's kingdom on earth. And you know what? When we're called to follow Jesus, it can't be about our kingdom. It can't even be about the kingdom that we're called to conform to. It's we're called to the kingdom of God that transforms our lives. When we follow Jesus, we follow him to the death of sin. Sin is that independent life, your own purposes, your own way versus the way of Jesus. And we got to give that up. We got to give up those things that distract us, that destroy us, that limit us from a life that's open to Jesus leading us. Romans six eleven says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. You're in Christ. No longer in sin. And finally, not only do we follow Jesus to the death of death and to the death of sin, we also follow him, follow him to the death of self. This is perhaps the most personal. We all like to be saved from death. We all like a way out of sin. But boy, do we love ourselves. Look at this call of Jesus, verse 34. 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This goes against our structure for significance, doesn't it? Significance in our rights and our personal property and our personal image and identity, our personal worldview, our personal values, our personal goals. Everything is personal because we worship the individual here in the United States. But Jesus says even the individual must die in order for him to live in and through us. We've got to be willing to do that. What, what is it that Jesus really wants us to put to death in, in ourselves? And by the way, he's not asking us to think less of ourselves. He's just asking us to think of ourselves less. There's a difference. There's a difference. True identity is found in Jesus. But we've got to get over ourselves so that we can be about Jesus. The first one is this. It's self-interest. We've got to die to that. Gotta die to that obsession of always thinking, how do I feel? What do I want? We're obsessed with that from waking up to sleeping. And instead of ourselves, we need to search what is the heart of God today? What does Jesus want in, in my life and for their life? You see, without this grid of of a being more about God than you are yourself, without this, a follower is going to be led astray every time from God's path, and he's going to blaze his or her own trail. And you can't be about Christ if you're about yourself. So we're called in this invitation by God, by Jesus, to 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 lose your obsession with self, to find a greater liberator in your life. One away from the vanity of yourself, the one who is Jesus. We're called away from our self-interest by denying ourselves. Secondly, we're called away from self-preservation. Look at what Jesus says here. Not only deny yourself, but take up your cross. This was a graphic image to the disciples. It was totally unexpected and unanticipated. It means meant something different to them than it would be to us. Take up your cross would mean, oh, isn't that a great sign of Christianity? That's a good sign for us. We're pretty comfortable with the cross. It costs anywhere from 50 cents to millions, depending on how many diamonds we put on the cross we give to people. But it meant something different. Jesus was not handing out little tokens and going, here, just remember me with this sign. It's a cross. It's a nice little thing. Put it, wear it around on your necklace or on your charms. Wear it as a charm. Just gives you good luck. No, they knew exactly what the cross was. It was the curse. Cursed was anyone who was hung on a cross. A Jewish or Gentile world feared being crucified on a cross. It was public humiliation. It was agony. It was the worst way to die. Just not the cross. And yet Jesus was saying, take up your cross. Matthew would say daily. Take up your cross daily. Die to yourself in order that Christ can live through you. Oh, but wait a minute. Jesus is going to threaten my comfort. Yes. Jesus is going to threaten the way I like to do things, the way, the way my life. I mean, I've set my life to live the way I want. Yes. Jesus will threaten that. If it's all about you, it can't be about him. 
And, and if your way of life is more important than Jesus, what Jesus is saying is you'll lose Jesus and you'll lose a whole lot more. Following Christ is not a negotiation. Many come to Christ and go, okay, as long as I can stay this and this and this and this, we just stack it, then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, just, just throw away the stack. Follow me. Take up your cross. That was a death sentence. It means that it's final. It, it means it's certain. You give up. You stop this self-protection, self-preservation that our culture just loves, loves to sell. And we make our lives about Jesus. It's not, it's not you know, a negotiation with him. It's submission out of trust and love. Negotiating with Jesus on following him would be like you to be diagnosed with heart disease in need of a triple bypass and you to go, okay, I'll just stop eating bad and I'll exercise more. No, you need a whole lot more. And following him works so much better when you, when you submit to him and you allow him to live in your life rather than your life to be the greatest thing. So you die to self-interest and self-preservation. And finally, your self-direction. Look at this one. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus calls us to follow him, which is not an abstract ideological notion of faith, but it's, it's an active, selfless, self-sacrificial, and submitted life. What is it that would make us step away from ourselves? To follow Jesus. As I thought and pondered this question. The the command of Jesus. To love the Lord your God. With all your heart. Your soul. Your mind. And your strength. That's what enables us to do that. See when we love someone. We willingly give up ourselves for for them. Lust is loving someone to get something from them. Lust. Love is showing up to give. And you do that. Those of you who are married, you, you gave up your rights to your, the personal way you want to do life, hopefully. And you chose to love that person. You chose that there will be no other people you pursue. You willingly gave that. No one held a gun to your head, okay? You willingly did that. Why did you do it? Because you loved them. When your children were born to you, you willingly gave up a good night's sleep. You willingly gave up, you know... The ability to go here, this is your kid, change him. You know, you gave that up willingly to love that child. You have friendships that you love and deep friendships that you sacrifice willingly because you love them. And when you love Jesus, you willingly give these things up. He's not a threat. Love becomes your motive. And it was everything we have with Jesus was motivated by love. And since he chose to love us, he came for us. But he came in weakness, didn't he? Jesus came in weakness. He left heaven, a perfect environment with the praise of angels, with the glory that he rightfully deserves. And he took on flesh and he lived in a broken, wounded, messed up, sinful, fallen world. 
he was misunderstood. He was rejected. He was, he was, uh, he suffered and he was crucified. I mean, that's the worst picture of, of hero or Messiah that anyone expected. And yet it was in his weakness through his taking on of flesh and even submitting himself to death on a cross that when we follow him, when we want him in our lives, we have to start in weakness. We have to give up our self-centeredness and place him at the center. We need to give up our obsession to preserve our lives. We need to give up even the determination of a direction in our lives, doing it my way and humble ourselves to his direction. It begins with, I need a savior and you are, and we trust his work for us. But then his kingdom takes root in us. This is, this is where the kingdom of God becomes more about God than us. And this Jesus who died in weakness rose on the third day in power. Missed, missed it in this presentation of it with his disciples. But we get it because we know he did and we believe he did. But the reality is when we lose ourselves, the power of a new life dawns. We find true life. And the kingdom takes root in us. Now, someday Jesus is going to return and he's going to restore all things. Hate will be replaced with love and life will defeat death forever and ever. But right now we become weak. We make ourselves less so that Christ can become more. That's what a follower is because we follow him to the death of death, the death of sin and the death of self. And when we do this, when we follow Jesus to the death, guess what happens? We find it. We find life. And if you read the rest of the New Testament on those who have lived in the reality of a risen Savior who defeated the power of sin and death, we find people who live, they live freely in Christ. When you follow Jesus to the death, of, of death and sin and, and self. You live freely in Christ. Think about that. Those of you who are so fearful of death, you have life. Those of you who are bound and enslaved to sin and patterns, you can't break. You have freedom from sin. And those who are all in the world, all about ourselves... We now have the identity of Christ. This is a follower. We live freely in Christ. That's who you are as a follower of Jesus. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world? And what a great place to say that when he saw all the kingdoms of Rome and yet lose their own soul. Without Christ, that's who we are, lost in the world, lost in self, lost for eternity. With Christ, found by our creator, found to live following him, found for eternity. Follow him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see it. We may not fully understand it, but we see what you're calling us to do, to live freely in Christ, 
no longer dead to you and to ourselves, no longer enslaved to sin, we're set free. No longer obsessed with self, we're in Christ. Thank you for a new identity and a new direction for our lives. Lord, the reality is we all need to follow you when it makes sense and when it doesn't. So please work in our lives, grow our hearts towards you, deepen our love for you so that we trust you when you call us into the unexpected, unanticipated life and become greater in our hearts so that your kingdom would be advanced in each of our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.